You're listening to The COVID Chronicles, a podcast from the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health. Each week, a student from the Health and Science podcasting course interviews public health experts about the COVID-19 pandemic and the important intersections with nutrition, mental health, maternal health, and more. I'm Carolyn Christ, a health and medical journalist in Georgia who co-teaches the podcasting course. I hope you'll enjoy this series as much as I did. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Hi, guys. I'm Sneha Bardanini, and I usually go by Sneha. I am so excited that you're joining me today to explore exercise and nutrition among today's youth. Exercise and nutrition are both very complex and sometimes sensitive topics to discuss. We all have our own personal relationship with them, and this relationship is constantly evolving. This episode delves into personal experiences as well as a little bit of the science behind exercise and nutrition. We are now going to talk to Shavia Gaudi, an undergraduate student at UT Dallas. Shifi is the ambassador of Charge at Her College, and Charge is a national organization that works on uplifting girls and their relationship with exercise. Hi, Shifi. Hi. Hello. How are you doing? How's your day going? Good. It's been good. Just came back from a class, but thanks for having me here. How has your day been going? It's been going pretty well, too. Just had a class in the morning and had some time to eat, and now I'm chilling again. <laughs> good. I had myself a smoothie king. Nice. It's pretty good. First of all, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I just wanted to get a little bit into exercise and nutrition among today's youth. I initially sort of got into exercising regularly once COVID started because before that, I feel like I had a lot of things going that like kept me active to an extent. Yeah. Like I used to dance with you before COVID started, things like Mm -hmm. that, you know, but now I feel like like that's not as much of a thing. I feel like things are going back to normal now. But true, yeah. You know, slowly. once COVID had started, yeah, it was a little bit of just like sitting at home, not a lot of movement, things like that. Mm. And then I also feel like I started noticing that like there was a lot of content out there, whether that was social media, the internet, about exercise and nutrition. And I just wanted to like have a short conversation with you about that. Yeah. And just your journey. Of course, yeah. Okay, so what got you into the world of exercise and nutrition? Could you maybe like talk about like your journey and any chronology that's like involved in it? Like whether that's like how nutrition came along into the journey or if it started off with nutrition and then like exercise came into play? Like, Yeah, for sure. So I think um, my journey with fitness and nutrition kind of had a foundation And I built that foundation probably in middle school, I would say. That's when I started taking initiative to, you know, kind of be involved in athletics, like uh, middle school athletics. So because I wanted to really play volleyball. My mom actually played volleyball in her high school. So I was like, you know what, I should try it out. And it sounded like fun. So I tried out. I made the team. So that's when I was like, okay, like, you know, I kind of like doing this they used to you know make us run and stuff and not that I loved it but like it was nice because you get endorphins from it and I think that kind of set my foundation for you know working out regularly and uh, off seasons we used to you know still do physical activity like every day because it was an actual period of like class like there's a class period so after volleyball I did um track track I was actually involved like since like sixth grade um and that's when I got into running and stuff like that I kind of knew the general like just of like, you know, gaining muscle to run. It makes you better Um, consistently keeping the flow of like, you know, running because like if you take a break, you know, it's hard to go back to it. 
So just the kind of general knowledge of fitness, I started building in middle school and then I had soccer and then I did end up tearing my ACL in eighth grade. Yeah. Um, because no. like in soccer, yeah, I know not the, not the best moment of my life. Like, cause that's actually probably when nutrition came into play because, you know, I was injured, so I couldn't really do any physical activity. So what happened was I started looking at my body and be like, oh no, I can't like run. I, you know, I should restrict my diet. That's when like my relationship towards nutrition and food, um, it wasn't the best. So that's when I was like, you know, let's not eat as much because I can't do physical activity, which is not. So I started to learn like a little bit more about my body. And I actually ran with a torn ACL, stuff like that. And like it worsened my knee, but I eventually got surgery, fixed it. And I went back into dancing. That's when I danced with you. So after I got my ACL fixed, I joined the dance academy around my sophomore, junior year of high school. Yeah. So then obviously we had some found like I was coming back in, like going back into working out. Um, but as we all do, sometimes, you know, like my family had a lifetime membership. So like the only thing I used to do was like cardio maybe and then abs, because I feel like we all have that mindset, especially like women just targeting those areas where like you think you feel good in like cardio just to trim that fat. And then the stomach because you know we all want to have a slim stomach which is i feel like now i've learned more uh, about that that that's not the case and then covid happened so my senior year as as much as it was terrifying and horrible it was a blessing in disguise because i feel like a lot of people kind of you know got the time and took the time to learn about their bodies during quarantine because they weren't doing anything. They didn't have anything else to focus on and they focused more on themselves, whether that be, you know, mental health or physical health or both, because I feel like they go hand in hand. So I started, you know, focusing more on my body, like maybe I should work out, like I'm not doing anything. I'm sitting in my house. So I started making these little, you know, plans for myself, fitness plans, like watching YouTube videos, doing it, FaceTime my friends, doing it. And I was like, I actually do enjoy this. You know, the best part of my day is when I used to like get those endorphins from working out. And then later on, when COVID kind of started settling down, I wanted to get my gym membership. So I got my gym membership at LA and I was like, I should go into lifting, like lifting weights. Cause I know we always did bench press squats during athletics, but it was only just because they were making us do it. And then also during quarantine, I heard about charge. And that's how I literally brought a whole organization to campus because my friend saw my private Snapchat story of me posting about like my workouts that I was doing and the nutrition, like smoothies that I was making, the recipes I was doing during quarantine because I had the time to and I wanted to make a little like plan for myself. So she was like, you know, she seems into fitness and she was actually the University of Florida VP Media for a charge. So she tagged me in like a post saying like, tag someone who you'd like to see bring charge to their university and UT Dallas didn't have charge. So she tagged me. She knew like a couple of people, but I guess she tagged me because of my Snapchat story and I saw it and like literally now I'm here and I'm ambassador of UT Dallas charge and it's, it's been going great. So what I'm trying to say is to recap or like to just to end things that I figured out what intuitive eating was through charge also not to restrict your body of eating, but just make sure you know what you're eating. You don't have to restrict your body from anything. And going back to what I said, like I only used to work out my abs and like cardio that didn't really do anything for me. Like, yeah, sure. Like I used to get an from it, but then I would just 
not see any results or that I wanted to, you know, it would just be a cycle of like doing that and not liking my body, going to the gym more, not eating. Like it was a, like a bad cycle. So when I started lifting, I did muscle, muscle gain. I feel like I felt, I fell in love with muscle and seeing that. What's the word for it? Progress. There we go. (laughs) Your progress from it. So yeah, and I started seeing a difference and then nutrition came into it because you need to eat in order to gain muscle. You cannot restrict yourself of, you know, especially protein. So I started eating a lot more actually. And when I started lifting during the summer, so June, July, August, I was consistent with it. I mean, I'm still am lifting, but like we have charge, but in the summer I was every day at the gym and then I ate twice as much. And uh, obviously my parents were like happy that I was eating. And then I began to, you know, get a healthy balance of nutrition and all that. But I guess that would be my fitness like journey from now. And then now I started charge. We have different workouts to see what body parts that you can work out. Cause we had like a bar class the other day. And one girl turns to me and be like, I didn't even know I had muscle there. And I was like, yeah. So it's really nice that I can spread this movement of having a healthy relationship with your body and like physical and mental wellness with these girls at UT Dallas. That's why I love, you know, being an ambassador and why I bought, why I bought charge to UT Dallas basically. Um, And then just to share my journey and I shared my journey to you right now. Oh, that's amazing. And like when you talk about the cycle of exercise and nutrition and the relationship that everyone has with food. How do you think social media has influenced all of this, whether that's exercise trends, habits, and mindsets that people have in general? Yeah, yeah. I think social media has a big role to play with nutrition, like what society thinks is fit or, you know, what is acceptable or what is skinny, what is not which is horrible. There's no definition of beauty. There's no definition of what fit is. It's all based on you. You decide for yourself. Every single person is different. It's literally meant to be different. You can't all look the same. But what I'm trying to say is there's unrealistic rules and like values that like society sets for you. And then I think it goes into their heads. Like when they see pictures of, you know, supermodels and stuff like that and like their diet, there's literally like memes and like TikToks about Victoria's Secret model diets being like a pee, a single pee. It's not realistic. And I feel like now, actually, maybe, maybe because I am on my whole, all my for you page on Instagram is fitness trainers. Maybe that's why, but I am seeing an improvement of what is shown on social media, like a whole day of eating, maybe like actually show you what they eat realistically. And Instagram is getting better with, you know, being more open and showing like how your body like bloats after you eat, which is so normal. Like it's, it's literally normal. It's your body being your body, you know, digesting your food. So it's definitely getting better, but I feel like those, you know, those standards are still in the back of people's mind and they still want to like, you know, look like that. And I just feel like going into the future that more trainers post more, be more open on social media and saying like, that's not realistic and sharing their own personal journeys like myself. That's why I bought, like I have an Instagram account for charge and I know you do too. That's like all of our exec and like our members are encouraged to have one just to share their journey because it's not meant to be like a perfect thing. Like we all have our unique journeys, but yeah, it's definitely getting better, but hopefully 
we can, you know, overcome that standard and like value that society has set beforehand and just, you know, realize that we need to just be in love with our bodies. And sometimes, you know, what Instagram, like what you see on Instagram is not real. What you see on social media, it's like, it's very, very unrealistic. So hopefully we can overcome that. Yeah, no, for sure. I feel like, you know, a lot of people are influenced by what they see, whether that's on social media, on TV, like literally any platform that a large audience usually sees. (laughs) So there's definitely, I think, some potentially harmful behaviors that are very easily just like shown to people and people are influenced by it. But I do agree with you. I feel like I've definitely seen a change in the content that's been, you know, out there. And I think people in general are also making a very conscious effort to make sure that like anything that they put out there is helping create somewhat of a safe space. Yeah, mm -hmm, for sure, for sure. Like you said, going back to the like, you know, how it was in the past, it can be harmful. Like looking at, you know, those diets and those restricted diets, especially like you're doing harm to your body, you're not helping it. Yeah, and I think the worst part sometimes is like, you look at this and you're like, oh, wait, if I do this, I'm going to look like that. Um, But like, that's literally not true because everyone's body is different. Everyone is different. And so what works for one person will not work for you. And even if it does work, does not in any any way mean that like it's good for you or like, you know. Um, good for your body yeah yeah that's why I love like the slogan of charge is like like helping girls find their fit because it's not we just don't do one workout it's it's meant to for everyone to have find their comfortability find their fit in what they love to do because everyone is different like you said yeah for sure yeah I think it definitely takes some time to figure out that balance of like exercise and nutrition that like works well for us works well, well for our bodies and just keeps us happy. Yes, for sure. I know you touched on this a little bit, but like, what is the purpose of exercise for you? The purpose of exercise for me is a couple things. One would probably be to, you know, have that healthy balance of physical activity, because it does, like I said before, play into your mental health as well. You know, if you're always, I'm not saying like, go work out like three times a day like that's that's unrealistic obviously for a college student especially but having um I think it was like 45 30 to 45 minutes of kind of physical activity three times a week at least is is pretty bait like it's pretty standard just so you can have that balance of you know like you your body needs it and that's when you have like a healthy relationship with food too. I feel like some people feel bad, like they don't work out, like let me not eat or diet. And like, I also, one thing that I love about Charge is that we don't believe in diet culture. Like I said, it's like intuitive eating. So know what you're eating, know what you're putting into your body, but like, don't restrict yourself like that. Um, But yeah, so can you repeat the question? (laughs) Yeah. What's the purpose of exercise for you? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So the purpose of exercising for me is creating that healthy balance because I want to eat, you know, experience food. And I feel like exercise also helps me not like feel bad in a sense, but like just, you know, just you're exercising. So like you can eat whatever you want. So, and also um, it does, you know, improve your capabilities like when it comes to you know studying or like you know taking tests and stuff because you're working out your body you're getting those endorphins in and physical activity is proven and like you know studies show that it helps you in school and everything like that so but yeah just having that healthy balance with 
between everything like work, school, and physical activity, mental health, and also it just makes you feel good because endorphins. And I feel like another aspect of it is like if you whatever in whatever you do, like physical activity can help you feel powerful. Like it doesn't have to be lifting. It doesn't have to be anything specific. But um, if you have that one thing you can go to, I feel like and if you're, you know, you consistently do it, just have that consistency and it can help you feel powerful. And like, you know, you know what you're doing. You like to do it. You get those endorphins. So, yeah, that would be my purpose. I love that. So as a college student. Do you feel like you face any external pressures to work out or like look a certain way? And like, what do you notice about the people around you? Um, as I as a college student, because that does play in, you know into it. Because you don't have you're not settled in yet. You don't have a job, you know. And another thing is that everyone's kind of looking for that person at this time, you know. So I guess like physical appearance does go into it, obviously. So what I'm seeing like my surroundings is like two things. One, people are working out for themselves and two people are working out to look like someone else. Like, so one thing is good. One thing is not. So obviously if you're working out for yourself, trying to feel better, you know, for you, do it for you, not them. Right. So like, that's, that's like, that's what I'm seeing, like, which is good. And the other thing is like, oh my gosh, like, I want to have abs like her. I want my like, but to like a certain way, you know, that's not really like when I like hear people say that, like, okay, like, you know, do you like that? Like, do, do it for you. Like, you don't have to look that way. And like I said before, like, um, you're not, you're not going to look like exactly like that person. Even if you do the same workouts as them, you know, follow the same meal plans, stuff like that, you're not going to look the same. But if you do it for you, you know, you want your body to look a certain way because so you can, you know, feel powerful and like you are content with yourself, then do it for you. Being a college student and all that, we're also trying to maintain literally like school, work, clubs, organizations, trying to get a job, trying to find someone to, you know, it's hard to, you know, kind of focus on yourself for you. Um, But yeah, so I'm seeing like an unhealthy relationship with working out and like a healthy one. So like, I just hopefully try to like make, you know, people more aware of themselves and, you know, have more of a healthy mindset towards working out rather than, you know, like, oh, I need to do this to look that way. And like, you know, just focus on yourself because there is a lot going on when you're a college kid. Yeah, and I feel like personally, a lot of that healthy relationship with working out comes with self-love and self-acceptance. Yes, for sure. Because I feel like once you truly just like know that your physical appearance is like not the end of it all, um, it's not, you know, gonna make or break things it's really gonna like help you just enjoy what you're doing more than you know looking at it as something that you really have to do just for someone else or even for yourself I feel like sometimes it can just like feel like a chore depending on like how I guess you I feel like a lot of it depends on like your purpose of working out even if like you're doing it for yourself um Mm -hmm. the purpose behind doing it for yourself is also I think sometimes important okay yeah yeah because I feel like sometimes you can do it for yourself but like you want to look a certain way way. like yeah yeah in a healthy way exactly like like actually like I agree with you because when I was I was still doing it for myself when I was doing cardio and like just you know core and cardio um not that I still incorporate it but that's not that the only thing so that I was just doing that just to make myself look a certain way not to I mean sure it used to make like 
I used, it used to make me happy because after working out, you do get endorphins, but I was, I felt like I was doing it just so that I can, you know, um, not gain weight. Um, and then, so now I'm lifting, I gain weight, like muscle weighs more than fat and now, but I'm in love with muscle now. Like I weigh more, like significantly more, but it doesn't, it's like in a good way because I'm working out to gain that healthy fat or like healthy muscle. Um, and like, yeah, like you said, like, you know, I'm more content with my body and, um, self-love like goes a lot um it goes into play like when it comes to having a healthy relationship working out for sure yeah how do you see the weighing scale play a role in like just the younger population I guess today whether let's say from like ages 14 15 to like once you're out of college um like the physical like weighing scale Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I feel like actually I will be honest with you when I tore my ACL, um, I couldn't like every day almost I used to weigh myself and be like, you know, like just, just keeping like, you know, that I knew that I couldn't like work out like I did before because I was injured. I used to like weigh myself, be like, am I putting on weight? Like I was so scared. And like you said, that age 14, 15, um, that's, that's where I was. I was like 15 ish. Um, and I feel like those people before they go into high school, like college, I, I guess that's when it like kind of starts when you're young, your, your metabolism kind of takes, you know, for mo- for most people, your metabolism kind of takes over. Like you don't really need to worry about what you're eating. But once it starts slowing down, especially for women, it's around that 14, 15 range. And, um, that's when you're like more conscious because, you know, you start developing like fat, like a little bit, you know, because of puberty as well. And so, yeah, like I, like I said, I started weighing myself because I didn't have, you know, athletics to fall back on. Um, and then once um, high school hit, you know, it's a little bit more, you know, harder to keep up with like working out and like um, grades. If you don't have something like that you're into, like whether it be dance, whatever, I feel like, if someone doesn't have a passion, if it's not like a physical activity passion, like the weighing skill can have like a negative impact on your life. If you are looking at it just so you you want to see a lower number, you should like now, I feel like if you have a healthy relationship with working out, if you ever go on a scale, you should look at it to see like a goal number, not a lower number, like goal meaning like it for me, it might as well like be a higher number because I am trying to gain muscle like in more places, which means that I will like weigh more because it is muscle. The weighing scale doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing, but unfortunately I think it is like during like puberty when like, especially women when they hit it during like 14, 15 and into high school. So yeah, they shouldn't, but I feel like more, more society what it makes like when you, when you hear like weighing scale, like, oh my gosh, like weight, I need to weigh less and stuff like that. Do you think people have the awareness that, you know, weight isn't probably a good measure of health, fitness, or like any of that? Do you feel like people have the awareness? Yeah, for sure. Like um, weight doesn't really play into it at, like at all, I would say, because like we've been saying everyone is different. Everyone even has different bone densities. Like I have, I got my bone density, like, you know, from my dad and he has like, like thick bones <laughs> and like some people might not have like that same bone structure, you know what I'm saying? So like weight is very, very relative, like 
toward you know to yourself and like um when it when it comes to comparing to others because it's not just the appearance it's about what's inside too and like even like bigger like girls or like if the height can make a difference as well like and when you're like taller and you weigh more you're like you can even like look skinnier and weigh more like it's literally all relative and um I was saying like even like bigger girls like you don't have to look a certain way to be healthy as long as you have like that balance going back to that word like balance of like physical like um health and mental health and like loving your body like it doesn't you don't have to look a certain way to be healthy like even if you're a you know bigger person because that can mean like you just have more body because I'm five feet tall like there's bigger people than me um there's even smaller people than me but yeah so it's distributed a certain way and you don't have to look a certain way to be quote unquote what society thinks is healthy or fit yeah definitely I, I definitely agree with that I feel like it's becoming more common now but it definitely used to be a lot more rare for like people to actually like understand that just the number on the scale isn't indicative of like your health your fitness levels like any of that so just to like end what do you hope to create with charge this year and what do you hope to get out of it um love answering this question because <laughs> as you can tell i'm passionate about charge um but my end goal honestly is just to leave like a legacy behind for college students even if it is geared towards girls charge is founded by women and geared towards women i just want to make an impact on like college campus in general and student life because i feel like with everything going on like we talked about being a college kid it's hard to focus on yourself and focus on like your well-being sometimes so um i love that charge has that like you know alternative like your second component of it that focuses on mental health as well like you said self-love they had a self-love club which is about learning how to love your body and also an intuitive eating club which is about you know not restricting yourself like is in diet ways but you know knowing what to eat and like just like eat whatever you want but just know just be aware of it so my um, goal is to even when I'm graduated and gone, like, you know, you know, have a job, a career, whatever that charge is, you know, still going, still successful, teaching like girls to love their body and have a healthy relationship with themselves and um, physical and mental, like, you know, well-being or everyone, you know, I'm happy to say that I created a legacy here at UT Dallas. That's so cute. I love that so much. And I'm like, I'm 100% sure that, you know, you will be successful in creating that legacy that you want to. Because I see so many people from UT Dallas um, Mm -hmm. charge, you know, enjoying the workouts. I have another friend on the exec, Sammy. um, Yes. Who also just is enjoying it so much. And I think is um, on that journey of like self-love, enjoying to work out all of that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just an amazing thing that you're doing here. Thank you, Sam. So thank you for talking to me today. Of course. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for letting me talk about charge. (laughs) Of course. Thank you. It personally took me a very long time to figure out my relationship with exercise and food, and I feel like I'm still in the process of figuring out a balance that keeps me happy. This is something that I feel like a lot of people struggle with, and it's really encouraging to see people like Shibby work towards creating a safe space. 
We are now going to talk to Dr. Dan Bannerdot to learn how nutrition plays a role in exercise and life in general. Dr. Dan Bannerdot is a professor of practice in the Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory University. He has written books and book chapters on sports nutrition and served as a nutritionist on several Olympic teams. So I just wanted to, you know, just talk about exercise and nutrition among today's youth. Mm -hmm. And so I initially sort of got into exercising regularly once COVID started. Before that, I had other activities like, you know, dance, just like walking around to get to classes and other stuff like that, you know, keeping me a little bit active. But once COVID started, I started, I sort of, you know, started dedicating a little bit of time every single day to keep myself active. And at that point, I still sort of started noticing that, you know, there was a lot of content out there, either on social media, the internet, everywhere else, um, about exercise and nutrition. And while I found some of it to be very informative, I also felt like some of it was a bit misleading and maybe not tailored to everyone. So I wanted to talk to an expert like you in exercise and nutrition to learn more about, you know, what's going on today in the world of exercise and nutrition and how it relates to today's youth. <laughs> what are some trends in terms of, you know, nutrition that you've noticed um, in youth over time? Uh, on the bad trend, I would say there's an over-reliance on supplemental nutrient intake. And uh, for many reasons, that causes a great deal of difficulty and very often causes more problems than they resolve for reasons which I'll explain in a moment. So that's that's one big thing. And you know this, this conception that if a little bit of a nutrient is good for you, more must be better is also pervasive out there. You know, so if I talk to physically active people and I say the word carbohydrate, they kind of shrug their shoulders. And if I say the word fat, they kind of go, oh, I have to stay away from that. But if I say the word protein, they get all excited, you know, because that's really what they're focused on. But what's interesting to me is that most people have no conception whatsoever about how to eat protein in a way that it can actually do you some good and not cause harm. So most people don't realize that the maximal rate of protein utilization in most humans, once you're fully grown, is relatively small. I mean, it's 25 to 30 grams per meal that you have. You know, very often people will have meals that are 50, 60, 70 grams of protein, and they think, okay, I've gotten my protein in, but they haven't because the protein, when you provide that much at once, can't be used anabolically. I mean, you just, you exceed the cellular capacity to deal with it. The cells just denitrogenate it. They take away the nitrogen and store it as fat. So what they're really doing is they're increasing their fat mass and not getting as much protein as they thought. There was a, a lovely study that was done in Houston by Doug Padden-Jones a while back, which kind of emphasized this point. He looked at people that had trouble maintaining their muscle mass and trouble maintaining their bone mass. And they were eating three meals a day. Uh, and at breakfast, they didn't have very much protein. It was like cereal and you know stuff. It was a little bit of protein, but not very much. At lunch, they had a little bit more protein, but still not very much. But at dinner, oh my goodness, you know, big steak, you know, a, lot, you know, a huge amount of protein. So when he looked at the total protein intake that was consumed, it was plenty for the people who were consuming it. It was about 90 grams of protein, plenty of protein. But then he looked at the distribution of it and he thought, wow, this is amazing uh, because people are getting way too much protein in the evening and not as much as they should be getting in the other meals. So he modified their diet. He gave them exactly the same protein 
they were eating before, but as, instead of maldistributing the protein so that it was evening based, he made sure that they had 30 grams in the morning, 30 grams at lunch and 30 grams at dinner. And all of a sudden their bone mass was better and their muscle mass was better. Diet over a 24 hour period, exactly the same, but just redistributing it in a way that the body can actually use it made a huge difference. And, and I think that's a very important point that a lot of people don't understand. And that is that we have, you know, one of the reasons they don't understand it is that the recommended dietary allowances, that is how much is recommended for people to eat over the course of a day, the vitamins, you know, and minerals that you should eat. They're listed in 24 hour units, but they really should be listed in how much and when, you know, units. So there's a lot of malnutrition that occurs because of a poor distribution of the nutrients which are provided. And so it looks, I mean, if you look at nutrient intake, most people get plenty of nutrients, but a lot of people are malnourished because they're not eating the nutrients in a way that the cells can actually use them, right? And when you take a supplement, which very often contains multiples of the recommended intake, which by the way, is already two standard deviations above the average requirement. So the the recommended dietary allowance is already much higher than most people require. Plus they take it as a supplement. They're getting it in one big dose, which exceeds the cellular capacity to deal with it. And you may actually downregulate cellular sensitivity to that nutrient. If you constantly confront the cells with too much the cells, trying to protect itself from getting too much of a chemical it can't use. So you actually end up with deficiency symptoms in a condition where you're giving somebody way too much. So, you know, we have to figure out how can we eat in a way that our nutrient and energy requirement dynamically matches our body's utilization of the nutrients, right? And so I'll give you an example. How long does it take for blood sugar after you eat to go back to a point that's too low? I am not entirely sure. Yeah, I mean, but that's that's kind of basic. You know, nobody knows, Snehita, so it's not just you. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, very few people know this, but it takes about three hours if you're doing normal daily activity. I mean, doing what we're doing right now, you eat, blood sugar reaches its peak about one hour after you eat. And two hours after that, you're back to pre-meal levels. You need to eat again because if you get low blood sugar, which is the primary fuel for the brain, the brain gets upset and, you know, you get hungry. And if you keep getting hungry, you get a lot of people call it hangry, right? Mm -hmm. Because you know, you're starving the organ, which is responsible for your survival. So because it's responsible for your survival, it'll find a way to feed itself. And it stimulates the production of a catabolic stress hormone called cortisol. Cortisol breaks down muscle mass and bone mass, and it takes the amino acids from the muscle. The glucogenic amino acids go to the liver, the liver converts them to glucose, and now the brain can function. But guess what? you've lost muscle in the process. Now, the next time you eat, you don't have as much metabolic mass with which to burn the calories you're eating. So you're likely to store more of those calories. So if you can continue to do that, fat mass will rise, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look at people who are eating three meals a day, right? And blood sugar fluctuates in three hour units, you you know, it's guaranteed obesity. And if you look at the obesity trends in this country, it is guaranteed obesity. You know, I mean, a very large proportion of the population is becoming obese and it's increasing, right? And a lot of the problem is that the three meal a day paradigm 
has nothing at all to do with human physiology. That's not the way we used to eat. Um, it happened with the Industrial Revolution, where the industrialists said, have breakfast before you come to work. We'll give you a half an hour break for lunch. And when you go home, you can have your dinner. That's where three meals a day came from. It has nothing at all to do with what's best for us. We have to reconsider that. I'm very concerned about kids in school because they're in a growth phase where they get, a, they get school lunch. Holy mackerel. I mean, for a child, I mean, for an adult, somebody who's fully grown, blood sugar will fluctuate in maybe three hours, right? If you're just doing normal activity. For somebody who's growing, maybe you got two hours. So you got a bunch of hypoglycemic kids running around the school, right? I mean, you get somebody who's in a really big growth phase, like kids in, in their adolescent growth spurt during junior high school. It's hard to find teachers who want to teach junior high school because the kids are nuts, because they're hangry, because... Mm -hmm they're not eating at a frequency that allows them to keep everything normal, right? Plus, we're creating a population of even more obese individuals, right? So when you look at people who are physically active, which I think was your initial question, well, you use energy at a much faster rate, right? So I mean, if we're burning energy at a certain rate right now, talking to, to each other, if we were get, to get off our chairs and start running around our rooms, Per unit of time, we'd be burning more energy and we would be using blood sugar at a much faster rate. Guess what? You have to eat more often. I guess, the, uh, have you ever heard of the Mediterranean diet? I've heard of it, but I'm not entirely sure what it consists of. Yeah, a lot of people say the Mediterranean diet is really good. I'm from Greece, so I'm very interested in the Mediterranean diet. And I grew up in Greece, so I, I know a little bit about how people eat there. And they miss a very important point when they describe the Mediterranean diet. They say the diet is higher in fish, lower red meat, more fresh fruits, more fresh vegetables, not as many inflammatory polyunsaturated fats. So the oil, olive oil is monounsaturated, tends to be uh, inflammation reducing. So they're, they attribute the kind of foods in the Mediterranean diet to the reason why they have a lower risk of cardiovascular disease and lower risk of cancer in people who eat the Mediterranean diet. But they miss a really important point, which is, yes, they do eat those foods, but they eat breakfast, they eat a mid-morning snack, they have lunch, they have a mid-afternoon snack. They have their first light dinner, they have their second dinner, and they have a snack before they go to bed. In other words, they eat in a pattern which makes sure that blood sugar is sustained. The meals that they eat are smaller because they're not as hungry. They just eat a little bit, you know, each time they eat, right? So their fat making potential goes down. It's the way to go. We could use protein as an example for athletes. Okay, the, the maximal recommended protein intake for an athlete is two grams per kilogram of body mass. So let's say we have a, I'm going to just use round numbers here so that we can do the math easily. So let's say that you have a hundred kilogram football player, right? 220 pound football player, right? Mm -hmm. And their protein requirement is two grams per kilogram, right? So that means they need 200 grams of protein to satisfy their protein requirement. Okay, but the most protein that you can eat and use it anabolically, right, is about 25 grams, right? And this person needs to eat 200 grams. How many meals does that person need? A little less than 10. <laughs> Eight meals. 
right? 25 times A is 200. Mm -hmm. All right. So they would, you would need to structure a meal pattern for them that has breakfast, a mid-morning snack, lunch, an early afternoon snack, a late afternoon snack, a small dinner, another small dinner, and a snack before they go to bed, right? They don't eat that way. So they're eating that much protein, but they're getting fat doing it, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're, not, they're not supporting the musculature that they need, right? So it ends up being a big problem. There's a paradigm that I started studying this. My first article on within-day energy balance, I think was published around 2000, over 20 years ago. And we looked at energy balance on an hourly basis and then looked at body fat levels. And the athletes who achieved the biggest energy balance deficits, that is, allowed their energy expenditure to go down farther because they weren't satisfying it with food, right? Even though at the end of the day, their total energy intake was okay, those with the biggest energy balance deficits had the highest body fat levels. So the calories were fine, but they just weren't eating them in a way that could satisfy their body's needs in real time. And since then, the International Olympic Committee has uh, developed a paradigm which is referred to as RED-S, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. And basically, they're saying, if you have somebody who's physically active, it's extremely important to make sure that they have enough energy available in the system to avoid going into a big energy balance deficit. Because if you do, you're not going to benefit from the exercise. You're going to tear down the tissue you're trying to help as a result of the exercise that you're doing. You'll have all kinds of health problems which are created. You'll have all kinds of performance deficits which result, right? The strength to weight ratio will go down. So this is a published paradigm now. And somehow I'd love to see it trickle down into the non-athlete population because using the Mediterranean diet as an example, the general population would benefit from having that same idea of never, never overfill the tank and never let it get to empty. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult. It, it, it's difficult because our culture is somehow three meal a day oriented and we're, we're experiencing enormous medical costs and enormous health problems. And I might also add enormous cultural social problems. You know, somebody, you know, who's 20 years old and is obese, I mean, they're not going to be able to do the same social things that somebody who's the same age and has a better physique, you know, so it's, and they don't know what they're doing wrong. I mean, the, the, the chances are they're going to go on some really nasty restrictive dietary intake and they'll create a permanent obesity for themselves. They may temporarily lose weight, but weight is the wrong metric. I mean, if you, if, as I mentioned before, if you put yourself on a diet and you allow your gas tank to run out of fuel, you lose the wrong tissue, right? And you're, you know, it becomes increasingly difficult to achieve a normal weight if you put yourself on that kind of restrictive intake. So it, it's a, it's terrible the way people consider ideal, you know, or how, to, or how to resolve a lot of these problems. True. How would you suggest that, you know, people go about finding good information about how to just eat healthier? Because I think it's very common for people today to go on restrictive diets, like you said, um, and not really understand what their body is doing and how it really works. So where should people go to find valid, good information? You can go to people who are credentialed in the field. I think that's very important. 
you know, I mean, I've written 11 books, you know, borrow one of those books and read, read some chapters. I mean, the, you know, there's, there's a lot of good information out there, but people tend to go with quick fixes that are not science-based as opposed to scientific fixes, which actually could produce perhaps uh, slower results, but more permanent desirable results in the long run, which is what people really should be looking for, right? I mean, people very often look for quick fixes and, and a lot of the diets which are out there uh, aim at satis- satisfying the, that mental state, which is, the, okay, I've, I've taken five years to get myself in this state, but now I want to fix it in six months. No, forget it. You know, I mean, you go about it more slowly, more logically, and you'll have a permanent fix as opposed to something that just makes you worse, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, part of the problem is that people look at weight and, and weight is like the worst metric that you could imagine, you know, I mean, for people, it's not about weight. It's about what constitutes weight, right? So uh, can I give you an athlete example yeah. on this? Okay. So I was working with um, a national uh, team, USA Figure Skating, and um, one of the figure skaters who made the Olympic team um, was walking down the hallway and she saw me and she ran to me and she started crying really hard. And I thought, wow, I've, I've never seen anybody cry for joy quite like this. And I thought, wow, she's really happy. She just made the Olympic team and a uh, superb skater, wonderful gal. And then I realized she wasn't crying because she was happy. She was crying because she was upset about something. So I said, what's going on? And she said, my coach just told me to lose 10 pounds before we leave for the Olympic site. And I said, but you're leaving in two weeks. He wants you to lose 10 pounds in two weeks. And he said, and she said, yes. And I I said, wow. And I said, you just made the Olympic team. You should be happy, you know, about the way you're performing and what you're doing. And I asked her, could I talk to your coach? You know, do I have your permission to talk to your coach about this? And she said, yes, please talk to my coach. So I've known the coach for 20 years. He's a wonderful guy. I mean, absolutely wonderful coach. Definitely has the athlete's interest in mind. So I was kind of curious about, you know, where did this come from? And when I talked to him, he told me, he said, yeah, she's wonderful, but I'm really afraid about the international judges. They're increasingly giving people who look smaller, higher scores. So he didn't want her to suffer, you know, because of her physique, right? When she was nicely muscular, she definitely didn't look big, you know, but he was just worried about that. So he was rationally worried, you know, about her appearance and stuff, which in my mind was perfect, but, you know, he's looking at what international judges are doing, you know, in terms of scoring. So I said, well, what's going to happen if she doesn't lose 10 pounds in two weeks? He said, well, you know, we've got a, once we get there, we've got a week and a half before the competition starts. I'll just work her really hard. I said, great. So you're going to tire her out before the competition starts. And he said, well, what do you suggest? And I said, well, what would you do if she gained 10 pounds of muscle and lost 10 pounds of fat? 
she'd be smaller. Her strength to weight ratio would be better. Her endurance in the long program would be better because she'd have more muscle moving less non-muscle weight. She'd be able to jump higher, so she'd have more time to do her spins. Her lands, landings would be more secure because she'd have more muscle to take the gravitational forces from the landing. Everything would be better. And he looked at me and said, okay, if you can do that, then that would be great. And I said, well, we don't have to. She's already the leanest person on the team, and that's why she's skating so well. She's great. Leave her alone. Guess what? She won a medal. So you, you understand how weight can be so misleading? Because you can be the same weight because fat takes up so much more space per unit of weight. per unit of, So one pound of fat takes up this much space. One pound of muscle takes up this much space. So if you had more muscle and less fat, you're automatically going to look smaller. But if you just look at weight and don't know what constitutes it, mm-hmm. right, people are misled into thinking, yeah. you know, what's there. So I would say weight, you know, is a huge problem. I'm not, I didn't mean it that way, using huge and weight in the same sentence. You know, I mean, I would say, (laughs) you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know, I I think, and there's some very inexpensive means now for predicting body composition. And, you know, if you could just throw away the weight scales and let people understand what's going on as a result of their um, physical activity and eating patterns, then you could make some logical recommendations about how you could improve the musculature. And generally, if you improve musculature, fat will take care of itself, right? So you end up being a lean and mean machine and look better. So in terms of like general population, you know, Mm -hmm. nutrition and food are sensitive topics to discuss in Mm -hmm. general. So how do you go about discussing these topics? You know, basically, I, I don't, I try to take it out of the context of opinion and put it into the context of science. So that's that's one thing right i mean um if we can let people know we're talking about science you know hopefully we can get them to listen a little bit more carefully and um, follow some of the recommendations a little bit better you know so i I think that uh initially ends up being a very important thing and you know the other thing is i think the messaging that we we make is extremely important i'll give you another example of of potential error in messaging. So let's say we had a team of people and we knew what the average body fat percent was for that team of people. And then, you know, we measure one of the people on the team and that person has a body fat percent, which is two standard deviations higher than the average. Okay. I mean, the normal response to that is to look at the person and say, we need to get your body fat down. And that's a mistake because we don't know where they were before, right? Or where they're headed. So what if that person's body fat was even higher a month before and even higher than that a month before? They're already on the right trajectory. Why would you intervene to do something when they're already doing the right thing themselves to get to where they need to be? You shouldn't, but we do because we very often rely on a single measure rather than trends to see what's happening. You know, another example may be somebody's body fat percent is lower than the average, and we tend to not say anything, you know, to that person. But what if on that single measurement, they're lower than the average? But what if they're even lower still a month before and lower still a month before? They're moving in the wrong direction, you know, 
we ought to say something, right? But how we say it ends up being very important. So let's say somebody has a high body fat percent. If you talk to somebody and say, we need to figure out a way to get you to eat so that you can lower your body fat percent, the conversation's over. If you tell somebody they're fat, they're going to put themselves on a restrictive intake. End of story, period, finished. But if I look at that same person and say, John, we need to figure out a way to increase your muscle mass. You want to work with me on this? And all of a sudden they'll start listening and say, yeah, I'd like to increase my muscle mass. Well, you know, so let's get your muscle mass percent higher, right? Well, muscle mass percent is the inverse of body fat percent. So if somebody's body fat percent is 40%, that means their muscle mass percent is 60%. So you can look at them and say, I want to get your muscle mass percent up 65 to 65% right? That, that automatically means that their body fat percent is going to drop, but you're focusing on the muscle, right? And you can keep the conversation open. So before I talk about food, I, I have to think very carefully about where are they? Where have they been? Are they changing in the right direction? Are they changing in the wrong direction? And how can I have a conversation where we can get the desirable outcome, right? All of those things I think are important. Uh, and then the next thing I do is I assess how many meals are they eating? And I do an analysis on within day energy balance, right? So are they eating meals and having an energy expenditure, which gives them too much energy at once or too little energy at once throughout the day? And how can those things be corrected? Can we add a snack here? Can we add something else there? And I have to say, very often, we think excessively about the quality of the food consumed. But humans are energy first systems. So it doesn't matter what the quality of the diet is that you consume. If you're not satisfying the energy requirements in real time, the car is going to stop. <laughs> I don't know quite how to say it, but you're, you're going to have problems with it. So let's make sure the fuel is satisfied. And then we can worry about the quality of the fuel. Let's give them some high octane stuff, you know, as opposed to poor quality fuel. So generally, if we can if we can figure out energy balance throughout the day and keep them plus or minus three or 400 calories so that they're not deviating too much from a perfect energy balance state throughout the day, then we can start talking about, okay, how can we now satisfy the nutrient needs that you have by improving the quality of your diet, more fresh fruits and vegetables, less sugar, lean meats, uh, less red meat, you know, more fish and, you know, that kind of thing. So that's generally the way I think about going across these things. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense to you? Yep, for sure. Yeah. I always like it when I make sense. That's good. <laughs> so what is some advice that you would give to today's youth and just like, I guess, younger population in general when it comes to exercise and nutrition? And like, how do we find a balance that works well for us as individuals. You know, it's kind of interesting. People know when they're going to exercise, but they're not too sure about what or when they're going to eat. So I, I guess I would try to elevate their thinking a little bit so that they think, so that they plan the eating and plan the snacking the same way they plan their other activities, right? So I, I end up, I mean, that's, it sounds simple. You know, we... A, a lot of young athletes that I worked with, I mean, national level, Olympic level athletes, they're still in high school, right? And 
I can't tell you the number of letters that I had to write to principals to say, you, Sally is on the, on the national team uh, because of her exercise schedule. She needs to have an eating pattern that allows her to have a morning snack and an afternoon snack in addition to the school lunch. Uh, If we were to do this in such a way where it wouldn't disturb the other students, would you allow her to do that, to work it in? And when I first started doing that, the principals would say, no, it's the policy that, you know, kids can't have snacks in school. So then I had to change the letter and, you know, I changed the letter so that it sounds something like this. I know you're very happy to learn that Sally made it on the national team. Uh, her exercise schedule is, you know, very intense. She exercises before she goes to school. She's in school. She exercises when she comes out of school. She needs to have an eating pattern where she can have a, a morning snack and an afternoon snack in addition to the, to the lunch that you offer. A failure to do this is likely to lead to an eating disorder uh, for Sally. And I know that you don't want your school associated with a national team athlete who has an eating disorder because for sure it will make the news. And once I changed the letter so that it included that little bit, all of a sudden principals started saying, okay, we can do this. You know, we can, we can add a snack, right? But there's so much resistance to doing the right thing, even if you try to plan it, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, basically it's not just setting yourself up for the exercise well, you know, it's making sure that you can stay well hydrated during the exercise. I mean, people typically get dehydrated because they don't drink until they're thirsty. Well, thirst is an emergency sensation. It's not an indicator saying I should drink now. It's an indicator saying, hey, you should have had something long ago because I'm down a liter and a half already. You know, it's it's basically your body saying, what are you doing? You know, drink something right away. And when people get thirsty, they drink too much at once, right? So if they're drinking a sports beverage, that's way too much at once right? On the other hand, if you learn to sip on it at every opportunity during practice, so you just had one or two mouthfuls, you'd feel fine. You'd never get too much at once. Your body would work better. Your muscles would benefit from the exercise better. Everything would be better. And then post-exercise, being able to recover your energy state and your muscle state, right? And your hydration state. That requires planning. I mean, one of the things that gets used up during exercise is stored carbohydrate, glycogen. And most people don't know this, but there's an enzyme called glycogen synthase, which is elevated post-exercise. So as stored glycogen goes down, glycogen synthase goes up. And at the end of exercise, your glycogen storage is at its lowest point. So glycogen synthase is at its highest point. Well, if you provide a bolus of carbohydrate right at that point, you don't have to worry about it being converted to fat because the glycogen synthase will assure that it's converted to glycogen, right? On the other hand, if you wait more than 15 minutes, glycogen synthase drops off. And now if you have the same amount of carbohydrate, a significant portion of it will be converted to fat. So you're not going to replace the glycogen plus you'll be fatter. So it's knowing how to take in these things. And, you know, these are published items. I just wrote the third edition of Advanced Sports Nutrition. I mean, all of these guides are in there. But, you know, people tend to go with easy fixes. And, you know, so they put themselves in trouble. I I just created a recovery beverage, which is being used by the Las Vegas Raiders right now as a test, which has a special, yeah, they're undefeated so far. 
it has a special carbohydrate in it that most people have never heard of. Have you ever heard of trahalose? No. Aha, see? Have you ever ridden a bicycle with your mouth open? Fun fact, I actually don't know how to ride a bicycle. <laughs> uh, have you ever accidentally gotten a bug in your mouth? No, I have not. Have you ever eaten shrimp? Yes. Have you ever eaten lobster? No. Okay, well, shrimp is an underwater insect, right? And insects store carbohydrate as trehalose. And uh, it looks like we're meant to eat it because we make the enzyme trehalase, you know? So it looks like we're meant to eat that particular sugar. Have you ever had honey? Yes. Okay, so honey is an insect product, and there's a little trehalose in honey as well. But we, we treat trehalose completely differently than other sugars. So and just to give you an example, have you ever heard of uh, maltose? Mm -hmm. Okay, so maltose is grain sugar, right? And it's two molecules of glucose that are held together with a 1,4 glycosidic bond. And the enzyme maltase breaks it apart into the two individual glucose molecules. Well, maltase is front-loaded in the small intestine. And so when you eat bread or any other cereal, the maltase very quickly breaks that maltose apart and you get a fast rise in blood sugar, right? Uh, trehalase is different. Trehalase is not front-loaded. It's evenly distributed throughout the entire length of the small intestine. And it's very similar to maltose, but instead of a 1,4 glycosidic bond, it's a 1,6 glycosidic bond. So you need a special enzyme to break it apart, which is trehalase. And trehalase is evenly distributed throughout the entire length of the small intestine. So you get a little bit of carbohydrate. You get a little glucose in the blood, a little bit more later, a little bit more later, um, which it turns out is the way that cells like to eat. I mean, it's just, it's perfect. And you don't get a hyperinsulinemic response from that. And the other interesting thing that we discovered was that if you have trehalose with protein, Pro, trehalose is a protein stabilizer until the trehalose gets digested. So have you ever heard of timed-release medications? Yeah. Okay, the first time-release medications came out of Japan 30, 40 years ago, and they were using trehalose as the time-releasing agent, right? Uh, but back then, they were getting the trehalose from insects, which is very expensive, but now they figured out a way to manufacture it. So you can actually buy trehalose on Amazon and, you know, anywhere and it's available. Uh, so it's got two benefits. One, if you have a bolus of carbohydrate that has trehalose with it and protein, it makes sure that the entry into the bloodstream is very mediated so that the cells never get too much at once and it lasts longer. So it, it ends up being a very good recovery strategy. So you don't make fat, you make glycogen and you make your cells happy so your cell your muscle cells recover better from the physical activity and so on. So, um, so there are a lot of little things like that that um, are out there uh, that help. I mean, if I tell a group of athletes you should, you should drink a sports beverage, half of them will say, well, doesn't it contain sugar and sugar will make me fat? Are you kidding? When you're physically active, your blood sugar dives. I mean, we have three hours maybe doing what we're doing right now. If you're physically active, maybe depending on the intensity of the activity, maybe you got 45 minutes, maybe you got 30 minutes before blood sugar tanks. So if you don't have something to replace that, you lose muscle. And that's not the purpose of the physical activity.
right? You want to you wanna make your muscles better, not lose them. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. You're very welcome. I hope I was understandable. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think it was definitely very informative, even for me as someone who's done a little bit of research here and there trying to understand, you know, um, how food intake should work and, you know, what's the best possible way to, you know, eat food on a regular basis. I think this gave me a lot of information on how to possibly change my food intake every single day. (laughs) Well, I mean, step one in this is get a sense of what your energy balance is. I mean, what at what point? I mean, one basic thing is, you know, that blood sugar is going to drop in about three hours, right? So right away, you need need a snack. But if you're physically active within that three-hour period, maybe you need to plan a snack or a drink or something that's got a little energy in it just to keep yourself normal, right? So that's that's the goal. But I tell a lot of people is whatever you have for breakfast now, if they're on a a three-meal-a-day pattern, whatever you have for breakfast now, take a little bit. Don't eat the whole thing. Mm and eat it two and a half, three hours later, whatever you have for lunch, don't eat the whole thing, you know, take a little bit and eat it two and a half, three hours later, whatever you have for dinner, do the same thing, don't eat the whole thing, and eat it two and a half, three hours later. So you distribute the calories better, you keep your blood sugar normal. And they come back at me and they go, I didn't know I could feel this good, you know, and, and they're fearful when I say you need to eat more often, they'll say, well, does that mean that I'm going to be taking in more calories? No, because if you keep blood sugar normal, you suppress the appetite stimulating hormone. So you don't end up, you end up eating what you need to eat a lot more than if you ate fewer meals. Mm -hmm. People don't understand that, right? So anyway, hope that helped. It definitely did. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. You have a great one. Good luck with it. Thank you so much. Okay. Sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming to learn about exercise nutrition as it can be extremely complicated. Check out the books called Advanced Sports Nutrition and ACSM's Nutrition for Exercise Science by Dr. Benardot to learn a little bit more. Now, we have Muskan Vora with us. Muskan is a student at Oxford College of Emory University. She is also a certified personal trainer and teaches group fitness classes at the Rec Center at Oxford. So thank you so much, Muskan, for coming to talk to me today. Yeah, of course. I just wanted to start off with some quick intro questions that would get us into your journey. So how did you become interested in exercise and how has it been teaching classes at Oxford Group Fitness Classes? It's been really fun to start off. I think it's probably my favorite activity that I do. Like, I don't really think there's anything that tops it. It's like definitely my favorite. As far as getting started in exercise, I've been pretty active my whole life. There hasn't really been many times where I wasn't. I played soccer and I ran growing up and then I had a pretty big injury senior year of high school and coming into my first semester of college. So I didn't exercise for a while. And then after I got cleared, I kind of just reevaluated where I wanted to invest my exercise time and I decided to start weightlifting. So that's how I got into this and the group fitness. I love that. So being a college student and having you know your personal trainer certification, what are some trends or common behaviors that you think you notice among high school and college students or like that general, you know, age group when it comes to exercise and nutrition? I think starting off with exercise, one of my biggest motivations for starting the group fitness is I've noticed a huge discrepancy in females, especially in joining that weightlifting space. I also think there's a lot of misconceptions in the space. I mean, myself personally, I growing up playing these sports, I was always discouraged from lifting weights. 
in the premise that I would become too bulky or not be fast enough if I was heavy. And I think that's one of the most dangerous misconceptions because weight training is so vital to bone health, to overall health. And even if someone is seeking weight loss, it's probably the most effective way to do so long term. So I think just like those misconceptions I see in college students a lot. And I see people also just being very scared to start in the weight room. It's definitely intimidating. Um, But I think when you kind of just like realize how simple things are and that most people are just kind of in their own realm and not really looking at you, I think it makes it a lot easier. I think nutrition wise, I can't really speak on it from like an educational standpoint because I'm not a nutritionist, but I think females that I'm around, I do notice, I think like shy away sometimes from eating and then real I I don't think that people realize too that under eating slows down your metabolic rate and that's actually more dangerous for you than not eating and I think that's one of the most empowering things about weightlifting is just the encouragement of fueling your body and eating and um, getting bigger and stronger so that's probably my favorite thing (laughs) yeah for sure I think that's something I've noticed a lot of people just tend to have this idea that if you cut down on what you're eating it'll maybe help you look or feel better but I don't know. I feel like sometimes like with personal experience, you eat a little bit more, you're fueling yourself better. You just have more energy to do things. For sure. Oh yeah. And like, especially in exercise, like the more you're eating, the more you can push yourself in your workouts, like the better you'll feel afterwards beforehand. Like there's really just, um, I feel like that's the beauty of weightlifting is like all these different aspects of your life just work so hand in hand within it. So. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> you know, each individual's relationship with like exercise and food is different. So are there any specific me- measures you like to take in your group fitness classes to make sure that you're creating a safe space? Yeah, for sure. I actually started the space thinking that it would be primarily females. And I was so shocked to see that there's really no difference. Like there's so many guys who really, really value the class. And um, there's so many days too where it's like majority guys in the class, which that kind of was surprising to me, but um, really cool. But as far as like being inclusive goes, I usually have moderations for certain movements And um, the movements themselves are actually pretty simple. I teach the class in like a HIIT style form, like high intensity interval training, but then we do traditional weightlifting moves. So the moves themselves are pretty simple. Like they're majority just compound movements. It's pretty simple to accommodate. And usually the accommodations happen in people just dropping weight or adding on weight. So a lot of people just do the moves with their body weight. Some will like grab dumbbells with it, heavier or lighter. And it's a pretty fun atmosphere. We just have like, we have a common group playlist that people add to. So it's like, it's pretty long with everyone's contributions. So I think that makes fun space. (laughs) That's really nice. And I think it's amazing to hear that there's so many guys coming out. I was shocked. I really was. Like I thought um, the original interest started because so many, I was taking some of my friends to the gym with me and just like showing them different movements or like how to work certain um, body parts. And that's kind of where I started. Cause I was like, I think it would be fun to like have like a group way to do this. I think it's just like, it's just a fun, such a fun atmosphere that really everyone just comes out and enjoys. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Cause when I was at Oxford, I don't remember too many guys coming out to group fitness classes. It yeah. was always, you know, um, there's the Arabic room and like there's the little weight room outside and it was always like guys in the weight room and I used to never see any of them in the Arabic room and group fitness classes and so that's amazing. It's lots of fun. We love change. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you think social media has influenced exercise trends and habits and maybe you know just like mindsets in general especially coming from someone who has their CPT. 
This is such an interesting question because I feel like there are so many negatives to social media. And I think also it's it's tough because you see these influencers and these, um, like I follow weightlifting a lot. And I think everyone always posts like such posed photos or edited. And it's hard to like sometimes think that like, I'm also going to the gym six times a week. I'm following your routine, but I'm not looking like you. And I think like in those ways, it's definitely, it can be negative. But if I think I take a different perspective in that it's been like, my primary reason for even starting there was um I I found this girl on TikTok like a year and a half ago and she kept on popping up on my for you page and this was when I was still injured so I was like this is like so silly like why does this keep on coming and then after I recovered um I still kept on seeing her stuff and then I really liked her message like her whole thing is just like learning to like embrace growing yourself and eating and fueling your body and that just really resonated with me so I pretty much just started following her to a T like everything like every workout she would post I would just like do that workout the next day so I think for me having social media was like the prime reason why I started weightlifting so it's been a huge huge positive for me and even now whenever I like understand movements and stuff I still rely on a lot of these influencers for workouts um, just to get some motivation or if I'm feeling bored with um, some moves I'll just like go and see what they're doing so for me, it's been like a mostly positive experience, but I can definitely see the negatives and how edited it is. I love hearing that because I think a lot of times we hear about the negative experiences when it comes to any exercise and nutritional content that's out, that's out on social media. But I love hearing that there's, you know, positives out there too, because when creators create stuff, it's to try and have a positive impact on the community. You know? <laughs> so that's amazing. I love that. So I also feel like while there is a lot of positive impact, there's also a lot of misinformation that's out there. So do you have any advice for someone who is constantly running into content on social media and other platforms that's like negatively impacting them? I think the biggest thing is just like at a point, just finding someone, especially when you're new, just like one creator you think you can rely on that maybe has like CPT in their bio or some things, you know, that they're certified and just sticking with them. I think like switching back and forth between people can be so confusing. Like I'll see on TikTok sometimes like people duetting others workouts and saying like, oh no, this is incorrect. Like it should be like this. And like a lot of the times, like I think we overthink like what is right and what is wrong so much. So we end up just not doing anything. And at the end of the day, movement is movement. So I think just like sticking with someone, just like maybe one creator that you really resonate with in the beginning and just like moving with them is probably, I would say like one of the best ways to go about it. And then maybe as you like feel a little bit more confident or have a little bit more information, you can start to branch out. But I think that's one of the better ways to deal with a lot of information coming in different directions. I actually really love that because I think what a lot of people tend to do is they look at a lot of different sources of content and they try to like, I guess, figure out what fits them best, but like not what's actually best for them. Yeah. (laughs) So I think that's amazing finding someone who actually knows what they're doing so that you're not like being harmed to a great extent by any misinformation that's out there and going from there. That's amazing. (laughs) So where do you see yourself in the future when it comes to fitness and maybe teaching classes? Yeah, I think for me, it's always been more of a fun thing. Like, I don't think I would see this being um, like my primary career path. Now that I have the certification next semester, I'll hopefully start personal training um, one-on-one with students, which I'm really excited about. As far as the future with classes go, I'll just continue doing them. Right now we're doing once a week in the mornings. So maybe I'll expand and do like an evening class or something. Um, 
over the summer I might work at a gym, but I think that's, I, I think I see like a pretty like low key uh, approach to fitness for me. And as, as far as teaching goes, I still work out myself and that's been really fun. So I see myself doing that for a while, but <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So with any of the personal training that you want to do, is there a certain approach that you see yourself taking with clients depending on their needs? Yeah, I think it's like very individualized. And I think the most important thing is respecting what someone's goals are and understanding that their goals might not be similar to mine or that their favorite form of exercise might differ from mine. I was a runner for years and um, long distance running was like my primary form of exercise. So um, at that point, if someone told me to like stop doing cardio completely and just start lifting weights, I would be really upset about that because that's what I enjoyed at the time. So I think just respecting the fact that not everyone will have your opinion. And like, I've taken some friends to the gym with me that hated weightlifting and just said like, I am not doing this again. Like I'm going to go back to walking on the treadmill or doing the elliptical. And I think another problem with social media too, is that like, there's a lot of shame that goes into sometimes like girls that do cardio. And it's just like this whole idea that like, oh, like you just don't understand how good weightlifting is. And as much as it is, like your heart is also a great muscle to train. So I think just like, as far as an approach goes with clients, just taking it on a very individual basis and respecting what they like and what their goals are, even if they might differ from mine. That's amazing. I I definitely agree with that um, because I've seen that with my friends too. They, a lot of times I've noticed that a lot of people don't feel comfortable with just being in an area with bigger machines or squat racks, barbells, things like that, you know, they get very intimidating. And I think even having a personal trainer just help you out with that, teaching you how to get comfortable with it. And if you don't want to venture into that, like right now, like helping you figure out other things, just, yeah, all of that. I think just having someone to guide you through that is definitely amazing. Yeah. And it's fun. Like, it's really fun for me too. And like, I'm not obviously older than people that I'm training. So Mm -hmm. um, it's fun to do it with friends or like over the summer I was training my mom. So it's just like, I, for me, it's more of like a fun thing, like just being able to spend time with people I love and help them. That's so nice. Oh my God. That that sounds so fun. (laughs) Working with your mom. That's amazing. Yeah, we were, we were working out a lot together this summer. That's so fun. (laughs) So I have one last, like, I guess, general question for you. Yeah, of course. How do we find the balance in terms of exercise, life, everything that works well for us as individuals? Maybe this is like really cheesy coming from someone that loves exercise, but I feel like when you finally find a form of exercise that you like and you value, it won't really feel like you're fitting it in. And I know that sounds like that's really hard to say. And that's like, that also goes to saying that there's many days that like, I don't want to go lift. Like I haven't lifted today and it might take me a little bit to go. So it's not to say that like this toxic positivity that like you will always find something that you want to wake up for. But I think like when you finally stop forcing yourself to do a form of exercise that you don't like, it becomes a release. Like for me, lifting every day is like the one time a day that I can just like go and just disconnect from everything and just like put energy into somewhere else. So um, the days that I don't lift, I actually end up mentally being more drained. So like whenever I, I feel like if you asked me to go run six days a week right now, like I would not, I would not do it. Like I just simply wouldn't. So I think once you find something that you like, whether it's cardio or hit training or weightlifting, like whatever you like, and I think it just becomes routine after a while. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think 
when I initially started, you know, weight training, that's how it was for me. And once school started, honestly, I don't know how I like I tried so hard to make time for it and I still would. I don't know. At one point, once like dance practice started, I'm on Karma on campus. And yep, once practice, so <laughs> yeah, once practice started, I was just so physically drained after practice that I was like, you know what? My body needs some rest, actually. Let me let me give myself some rest. And that's good. Like, I feel like as college students, we don't give ourselves credit enough for like all these other things that we're doing, like for you dance and even just walking around campus. Like that's, that's, that's very taxing. Oh yeah, for sure. I honestly did not realize how much I would be walking around here. Um, Oxford was just so small that I never felt like I was walking so much, but over here, just like walking to the shuttle. Cause like I live at Claremont. So I have to walk to the shuttle and then take the shuttle to get to campus and then walk to class. And then I'm pretty much walking like, you know, 15 to 20 minutes, like each time I'm doing that. And it adds up throughout the day. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot of walking. It obviously does. And like, you need like you and that counts like that. That's fully like valid exercise. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to me today. This was such a fun conversation. Yes, it really was. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. It, w- it was really fun because I think a lot of times it's hard to find people that, you know, are very supportive of everyone's own versions and own mindset towards exercise. Because I think people tend to have this idea that, oh, like, this is better for you. So this is right versus like you know something that's better for one person might not be better for like someone else so I think it was amazing hearing from you and like knowing that you know it's very much possible to like find personal trainers and just people around that are very understanding of that and very much willing to work with anyone that's coming from any background or any previous experiences yeah. And I think that's like such a beauty with media is that like that person can also be someone that you'll never meet. True. Yep. <laughs> yep. That is so true. Yeah. Thank you. Of course. Thanks again. This was really fun. <laughs> As someone with her CPT, Muskan's outlook on exercise and the energy she creates in her group in these classes is just a small example of a large, supportive and inclusive community that we can all create around movement. Having this conversation with her gave me insight into the motivation behind the work that fitness instructors do on a regular basis. This was such an exciting episode for me because I've been interested in exercise and nutrition for some time now. I've not always had the best relationship with them, and having these conversations reiterated what I learned about how people can be so supportive and are constantly willing to promote personal growth and health. Thank you for listening to my episode today. I hope you'll be back with COVID Chronicles to listen to more of our content. Thank you for listening to the COVID Chronicles. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe, share it with a friend, and rate it on your favorite podcasting app. You can visit us at exploringhealth.org and follow the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory CSHH on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, stay safe and be well.